This is the reading of God's word from John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten to their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Are we good? Anybody willing to say they're not? Yeah, uh, we'll talk about that today a little bit. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you just yet, really good to see you guys. Um, really good to be with you. And uh, as you heard from Myung, we are in our series in the book of John still. We'll probably be in this series for about a year or so, and we're only a couple months in. And our charge today is to investigate Jesus' fourth sign out of seven major signs, major miracles that put his divinity on display. And so our sermon is just entitled today, The Fourth Sign. And as you probably realize from Stephanie's scripture reading over here, we're going to be focusing our time on the first 15 verses of John chapter 6. And some of what we're going to be talking about this morning, um, we might call God's, is God's upper story. Uh, the telling of his upper story. And we see this upper story, these bigger truths about God throughout all of John and really throughout all of scripture as well. And as the upper story progresses in the first part of chapter 6, we're going to see how Jesus' fourth sign miracle contributes to that story. But in today's passage, we'll also be learning from the lower story that God is telling through his servant John. In the lower story of our passage, we're going to see some of the ways that God is at work connecting his upper story, his bigger story about who he is, to our daily lives and in giving us help and wisdom for walking faithfully through things like fears and frustrations and trials and testing that we experience in everyday life. And through it all, the big idea that I think we're going to see play out in a couple different ways uh, throughout our passage today is that in every way that matters, the works of Jesus always move God's people from scarcity to surplus. In every way that matters, the works of Jesus always move God's people from scarcity to surplus. But before we get into any of that any further, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get to it. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your kindness to us, even in giving us life and breath today. You sustain us. 
And so we thank you for that. We thank you for giving us a place where we can come and learn about you and worship you. And for the gift of your church, this faith family that we call Sound City Bible Church. I pray your care. I pray your protection over each one of us, Father. I pray that you'd give me grace this morning as well. That you'd bring clarity wherever my words might lack it. And that we would all grow in wisdom and joy this morning as we draw near to you through your word. And we pray all of this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Now, as we move through our time this morning, we'll be taking a couple of different passes at our passage in John 6. First, we're going to do kind of an explanatory pass just to get our bearings on the basics of what the passage says and means. And then second, we'll go back through and we'll focus in a little bit more on a few specific things in more detail. And we'll draw some application points out of what the Apostle John is teaching us in this passage as well. But how about for a warm-up, we go back a little bit just to get some context and take a quick look at where we left things last Sunday when Pastor Aaron was leading us through the final verses in chapter 5. Now just before last week, a little earlier in chapter 5, we had found Jesus responding to a group of Jewish objectors who had heard about or witnessed Jesus' working of his third sign miracle, the healing of this 38 years disabled man, On the Sabbath, the Sabbath, of course, being this day in which no work of any kind was to be done according to Jewish law. So that's the first 15 verses of chapter 5. And then in verse 16, we read, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Then through the next dozen verses or so, as Jesus begins a response to his protesters, he makes a number of really outrageous claims Claims that reveal his belief that he's equal with God the Father. In other words, claims that he is himself, Jesus, that he himself is God. Verse 18 then summarizes the response of the Jewish objectors to Jesus' claims about his divinity, saying this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. And that's where we picked up at the beginning of last week with Jesus, like an attorney defending his own case, defending his bold claims about who he really is. Now, Pastor Aaron summarized some of this courtroom language that Jesus used at the end of chapter 5 when he led us last week. And I think this is where he tried to use some kind of like a Matlock illustration or something like that. I'm not really sure what that was all about, um, but we'll forgive him. We'll give him grace on that. We have to tease him while he's away so he can listen to it on the recording later. But what he went on really well to explain, I think, was the testimonies of these four witnesses at the end of chapter 5 that Jesus calls as validation of his claims about his divine nature. Remember, Jesus called John the Baptist as a witness first in verses 32 through 35. He called his own prior miracles as a witness in verse 36. He called the voice of God the Father as a witness in verses 37 and 38. And he called the scriptures themselves as a witness in verses 39 through 47. I really love in that last bit of scripture where he's calling the scriptures as a witness in verse 39 where Jesus says to the Jewish objectors, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. So good. And that's where we pick things up at the beginning then of chapter 6, with Jesus having just defended through these four witnesses the bold claims that he'd been making about who he really is. Verse 1 begins, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. 
Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So after some time of, after dealing with the Jewish objectors and sharing the testimonies of these four witnesses in support of his claims about his divine identity, Jesus and his disciples retreat, probably to the more featureless side of the Sea of Galilee on the east side of uh, that body of water. We see John call the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias here as well, a name for the Sea of Galilee that was becoming more and more popular as the Roman city of Tiberias on the other side of the Sea of Galilee was growing in prominence. Also, according to verse 2, we see that there was a large crowd following them because, it says, of the signs they saw Jesus doing among the sick. Now, remember, Jesus had just healed this official's sick son back in chapter 4, and then he had healed the paralyzed man in chapter 5, and so his reputation for such things was creating an increasingly large crowd almost everywhere he went. I imagine the modern-day equivalent of this, if this were happening today, would be like if Jesus had an Instagram account, and he was like posting all sorts of his signs and miracles and healings uh, up every day that at one point he just like breaks the internet because there's so many. Like this is the kind of crowd that is gathering. This is the point uh, in Jesus' ministry that we were at. The buzz and attention that he was drawing was almost at the highest point that it would reach before his persecution. But as Pastor Aaron said well last week, for many of these onlookers and crowds, this was really just an adventure in missing the point. But even though that's true, for others, they genuinely saw and believed. They genuinely saw and believed through eyes of faith that Jesus was who he said he was as they witnessed these signs. And those who looked on in faith began saying things of Jesus like this. This is indeed the Savior of the world. That's from chapter 4, verse 42. Continuing then in chapter 6, verse 4 now. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So why does John mention the Passover here? This is a really good question, and it's unfortunately not one that we're going to be able to spend much time on today because it could be a whole sermon series really in and of itself. There's so much there. But it's at least worth saying that in the original Passover event, which is the basis of the annual Jewish Passover feast that John is speaking about here in verse 4, in that first Passover, God did a type of temporarily saving work you might say, in freeing his people from their enslavement to Pharaoh in Egypt after a very long season of forced labor and persecution there. So when John notes this for us in verse 4, that the time of the annual Passover remembrance uh, was near, and that he's doing this right on the eve of his fourth major showing of his divine nature, that connection there is to help us see that Jesus was connecting this too. He was connecting the temporarily saving work God had done through Moses when he had freed his people from slavery in Egypt to the new and better work of permanent salvation, true salvation now available to God's people through him. That's the short version. So, the Passover feast was at hand, now in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Okay, I'm going to pause for a second. It's worth stating here that this particular miracle, this fourth major sign and show of Jesus' divinity, is the only one other than the resurrection itself that exists in all four gospel accounts. We find versions of it in Matthew and Mark and Luke and, of course, here in John as well. And each one focuses on slightly different details. If you go through and read them, you'll see that. 
And they each bring a different texture and different depth to these historical events that we're talking about that are really helpful for us. For example, we know from Matthew 14 that at least part of what motivated Jesus to retreat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the first place was this shocking news that Herod, the ruler over a fourth of Palestine there, had beheaded his friend and follower, John the Baptist. So Jesus hears this news and probably in sorrow and also out of caution's sake, retreats because the time for his crucifixion had not yet come. We know from this same passage that Jesus also had compassion on this crowd that had followed him and that he was healing the sick among them as well. Then in Mark 6, we learn the reason for Jesus' compassion for the crowd was because he said he felt that they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's what verse 34 of Mark 6 tells us. We know from this same passage that Jesus had spent time with this crowd, teaching them many things as well. And then in the following verse, we learn that the day had grown long, that it was getting late, and that they were in a really remote and desolate location too. And all of this gives us important clues for understanding why Jesus might say to one of his disciples what he says here in verse 5 when he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? But why Philip? That'd be another good question for us to ask. Why specifically might he be asking Philip this? Well, in John 1, when Philip was called by Jesus to follow him as a disciple, we're told that he's from the city of Bethsaida, a fishing village in the region on the other shore of the Sea of Galilee. So perhaps Jesus is choosing Philip here to ask him this question because he'd have had the best hope for knowing what their options might be in the region for finding resources for feeding the crowd that had gathered. Then in verse 6, things start to get really interesting. The Apostle John records for us that he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So he, Jesus, knowing with full certainty the miracle and sign that he planned to accomplish for the benefit of this gathered multitude, asked this question to his disciple Philip in order to test him. And perhaps Jesus asked this question to Philip with an earshot of the other disciples as well because John records that we have two answers to that question, even though it was asked directly to Philip. We hear from Philip, and then we also hear from Andrew as well. Philip answers first, so let's see how he responds to Jesus' test, picking up in verse 7. Philip answers saying, Even 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. Now, a denarii was a Roman-minted silver coin that would have been like a day's worth of wages, probably. So Philip, looking out at this crowd of thousands, is troubled, and he's pessimistic, and he's saying, even if we had 200 days' wages, we couldn't hope to feed this kind of a crowd. It's unthinkable to Philip to assume that they could have solved this problem of feeding this crowd this remotely, this late in the day, and with such scarce financial resources. Next, we hear from Jesus' disciple, Andrew, and he responds, picking up in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Andrew at least seems to be trying at first, right? Apparently, he's made a quick search around to see what kind of physical resources might be available to help them solve this problem But pretty quickly, he turns up almost as empty-handed and just as pessimistic, doesn't he? He doesn't seem to be maybe as angry or as heavy in his tone as Philip, but in Andrew's reply, we find just as much hopelessness. 
He's found this one boy uh, with five round flat barley loaves uh, known to be the bread of the poor because they were made with barley instead of wheat, which was more expensive. And we see that the boy also had two very small pickled fish with him as well, maybe something like sardines. So in this meager find, Andrew is discouraged. He recognizes the poverty of those gathered here, and he realizes that their scarce physical resources won't be an answer to this problem. And he feels hopeless. He feels hopeless. But in all of this, Jesus didn't see scarcity at all, for he himself knew what he would do, as John tells us in verse 6. Jesus knew what he was about to do, and Jesus saw abundance. Jesus saw surplus. Verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them, to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So good, right? These five verses represent probably the pinnacle of our passage today, and there's just a ton of really good gospel stuff in here for us to unpack, and we'll unpack it in those two layers that I was mentioning earlier, in the upper story and in the lower story. We'll start with the upper story. And again, this upper story that I'm talking about, what I mean by that is it's this story that's being told almost from above, if you will. It's the story being told as God sees it, as he looks down outside of time over all of history, all at once. It's that story that's not so easily seen in the moment by those living through those events. The big story of God, who he is, who we are in him, and how all things fit together for his glory first and secondarily for our good. It's this big meta-narrative story through all of scripture of creation, fall, redemption, and eternal restoration. That's God's upper story. And today, in the beginning of John chapter 6, we get to get a glimpse of just a part of that upper story. You know, as I prepared to teach this week, uh, after reading through our 15 verses that, um, where we were going to spend most of our time, the next thing I did is I went back through uh, chapters 1 through 5 of John as well. And what leapt off the page to me this time as I read through it, more clearly than ever, was this regular drumbeat of God's upper story all along the way. And in particular, uh, what stood out to me was this consistent revealing of two things, the signs of Jesus' divinity and the claims of Jesus' divinity. The signs of Jesus' divinity and the claims of Jesus' divinity, like a drumbeat. And as I reread, as I reread chapter 1, what came to my eyes first was the claims that Jesus, make, Jesus makes of his divinity there. In chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is called the Word, and it says that the Word is God himself. In, chapter, or in verse 3 and 10, it's claimed that all things that have been created were created through him, through Jesus. In verse 18, Jesus is called the Son of God, and we're told that the Son of God is God himself. 
In verse 29, it's claimed that Jesus will take away the sin of the world. That's a divine claim. In verse 41, Jesus is called Messiah and Christ, both names for the prophesied divine Savior of the world who would one day come to rescue God's people. In verse 49, Jesus is called the King of Israel. See also the King of God's people. These are all claims of divinity, claims that Jesus is himself God. And that's just chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see the signs of Jesus' divinity in his miracle at the wedding feast. Whereupon hearing the news that the wine had run out in the middle of the wedding celebration, Jesus turned no wine into a vast abundance of the finest wine. And with this, maybe for the first time in the Gospel of John, we begin to see this truth that I said we'd be seeing today along the way. Namely, that the works of Jesus always move God's people from scarcity to surplus. So that's the sign of Jesus' divinity in chapter 2. But we also see there the claims of Jesus' divinity when he cleanses the temple of its dishonest merchants and dares them to destroy him and assures them that he will rise from death in three days if they do. A divine claim even over the grave. And in chapter 3, we see more claims of Jesus' divinity when in his own words, he says, everyone who believes in me will have eternal life and also that whoever fails to believe is eternally condemned. All of these things make Jesus the judge and they make him the one that gets to decide uh, the eternity of us all. That's a claim of divinity. In chapter 4, we see the signs of Jesus' divinity when he performs a long-distance healing of the official's nearly dead son, showing his power over sickness and death. And we see the claims of Jesus' divinity when Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that he can bring her eternal life and when he confirms to her that he is the prophesied divine Messiah and Christ who was to come. In chapter 5, we see the signs of Jesus' divinity when he heals the man who had been 38 years disabled, And we see the claims of Jesus' divinity when he proclaims to have power to raise the dead and to give life to whomever he chooses. Then back in chapter 6 now, we see the signs of Jesus' divinity through Jesus' miraculous work in feeding this crowd of 5,000 who had gathered there to follow Jesus because of the other signs and healings they'd already witnessed him doing. But Jesus' fourth sign miracle here in verses 10 through 14 isn't just feeding the 5,000. He brings blessing overflowing to them, doesn't he? In this sign, Jesus moves God's people from scarcity to surplus, not just providing the 5,000 enough food to get by on, but providing them with abundance, as much as they wanted, the text says. And so much so that in verses 12 and 13, then, John records the disciples gathering up 12 baskets full of leftovers, even after everyone had had their fill so that nothing would go to waste from the abundant provision that God had blessed the crowd with through Jesus. Now, some scholars contend, and I would tend to agree, that the 12 baskets that were left over probably correlate to the 12 disciples themselves, and that in the abundant provision of these leftovers to the 12, God means to communicate an upper story promise of provision to all future disciples as well, including us, if we're willing to look beyond our perceived scarcity, to belief in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and to trusting in the surplus and spiritual abundance, true abundance, that's available to us in him. And this is a little bit even of what we see happening in verse 14, isn't it? 
The crowd witnesses this fourth major sign miracle of Jesus, and they do the same thing that people did upon witnessing the signs of Jesus' divinity back in chapter 2 and chapter 4. What do they do, Sound City? What's their response? You can talk in church. What do they do? After they see these signs, they believe. They believe. In each case, that's what it says. They believe. Now we see in verse 15 that some continued to miss the point. They desired to see Jesus meet their needs according to their limited perspective. They failed, as many do even still, to meet Jesus on his terms, and they sought to force him somehow to become some kind of an earthly king of their own design. Yet when those God is calling to himself see Jesus' signs and claims of divinity, they believe. That's what happens. When those God is calling to himself see the sign works of Jesus bringing surplus where there had been scarcity, They believe. Moses had once brought a type of temporary salvation to God's people in Egypt where they'd been enslaved. And then before his death, he declared this to God's people. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Back in John 6.14 then, A memory of those words of Moses would have stirred in the minds of this now well-fed crowd. And as a result, some of the crowd would have had their young faith strengthened. And others in the crowd would have genuinely believed in him for the very first time. Sound City, the Apostle John, in his very own words from chapter 20, tells us that he wrote his gospel letter so that me and you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, we would have life in his name. Church, that's the upper story of John 6, 1 through 15. The story of the prophesied Messiah and Savior, Christ, creator and king who came to earth, fully God, fully man, to offer an unblemished sacrifice for our salvation. To offer abundant life where there was condemnation. To offer surplus where there was scarcity. This This is God's upper story in John 6 and in all of John's gospel and throughout all of Scripture. And this is good news, amen? Now for those in the room who would not say that you're a Christian, we're glad you're here. And maybe you didn't plan on this, but you have a choice to make today. Maybe you didn't come in here thinking, I want to go in and I want to make some decisions, but you have to do something. You have to respond to what's been presented here today. And we're gonna, not going to make you stand up or, or do anything weird, but you've got a choice to make. As we look at the signs and claims of Jesus, just the ones even that we've gone through so far, I just have to ask you, do you believe? Maybe you're not yet convinced. We could look at some other passages. We could look at John 10 where he says, Jesus himself saying this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. Non-Christians in the room, non-believers, like what do you, how do you respond to that? We could look at the promises of uh, the Apostle Paul to you and to me in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, where Paul claims that in Jesus, get this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 
That's a lot of alls and everys. Or we can look at what the Apostle Paul says about the surplus of grace that's available to us in Jesus, where in Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Non-Christians, friends, these truths and promises, these are the 12 baskets full of overflow and surplus provision that is available to us in Jesus. John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So if you're in here and you you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior today. You don't know forgiveness of your sins in his name. I'm asking you plainly. Again, you don't have to do anything weird or stand up or walk down here or anything. But after all that you've seen, after all that we've just walked through, do you believe? And if you said yes for the first time today, then that means that God, through his Holy Spirit, has been doing something supernatural in you, and you're a Christian now. And my hope, if that's true of you today, is that you'll come and talk to one of us, myself, one of the other staff members or elders, and that you'll let us celebrate that with you and let us help begin to point you towards what some next steps for you might look like. But Christians in the room, you know that all those verses that we just walked through, those aren't just for folks who don't yet believe. Those are for us as well, right? These truths, these promises we've been walking through, through, they're for us too, because what the Christian and the non-Christian both need in order to live a life of freedom and forgiveness, a life of contentment and joy despite our trials, is the same. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus and the gospel truth about his sacrifice in our place for our sins. Amen? But there's even more to today's passage that we haven't yet considered because God's upper story isn't all there is. Because these bigger truths about Jesus, about who he is about who we are in him, always overflow into God's lower story truths, which give us help and wisdom for walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, to use the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. But where do we find this lower story of God in our passage in John 6? Well, we find it most clearly in the responses of Jesus' disciples to the question Jesus had asked in order to test them. Let's go back there to verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And how do Philip and the other disciples respond to this test? Picking up in the next verse, in verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. Then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So the disciples, again, are faced with this insurmountable problem in their minds. Lower story. Is there anyone here that can relate to that? Anyone here that can relate to feeling like you have an insurmountable problem or struggle or trial or testing going on in your life? Or maybe you can relate to having life's challenges and trials tempt you towards really deep discouragement. Does that ring a bell with anyone this morning? I could also see how Philip and Andrew here might even be feeling like they've been treated unfairly by Jesus or set up to fail. Does that resonate with anyone this morning? 
We noted earlier in the disciples' responses, uh, they're expressing hopelessness here as well. Anyone resonate with feelings of hopelessness today? Anyone struggling with hopelessness in their life right now? Yeah, I think it'd be safe to say that nearly all of us, we experience some degree of these feelings pretty regularly, right? For some of us, almost all the time. So the question is, how do these truths of God's upper story that we were talking about translate and overflow into the lower story of situations like these that Jesus' disciples and people like us face all the time? Well, let me start to answer that question with another question. Can I just ask, has anyone, as you guys read that verse where where you're hearing that Jesus tested Philip, he tested his disciples, does that feel icky to anyone? Anyone else willing to say that that feels like negative in some way, that that we would be tested by God? Almost like um, Jesus is trying to trick trick them or like trip them up somehow? I'll admit it, like, it feels negative to me when I first read that. Anyone willing to admit that they feel that way about God sometimes, like they're being set up to fail? The good news is that if you feel that way, if you've felt that way, you're not alone. I think we're all tempted to feel that way at times. But the even better news is that God and his word has something to say about all this. And what we find about this in the scriptures is Nothing less than like a full-on theology of trials and suffering. But what the Bible teaches us about life's tests and trials and struggles and sufferings flies squarely in the face of what culture means to teach us, which makes what I'm about to say a little hard to hear and even really a little hard for me to teach. Because our enemy has done a really good job convincing most people, maybe even some of us in here, that we don't deserve adversity, testing, trials. We don't deserve challenges or difficult situations in life. We don't deserve hunger or hardship or suffering or inconvenience of any kind. And friends, just to be clear, that sermon that's being preached by our culture all the time is unbiblical, and it should be denied and rejected and refused at every turn. But it's not always that easy to do, is it? It's not always that easy to reject that sermon that our culture preaches, that we don't deserve those things. I can tell you that even just in the last 10 days, I've found myself several times saying, why does it have to be this hard? I can confess to you guys, most of the weeks prior to when I'm scheduled to preach, um, I feel like there's spiritual attack that goes on in my life and in my family's life. Not in, not in anything too weird or totally supernatural, um, but in more common ways. Like it almost goes without fail, as much as we pray against it, that Stephanie and I will, will get into a little bit of a fight or we'll get sideways with one another about a week before I'm preaching. And I can tell you like this time, like we were just speaking past each other. Like we were not communicating with one another. And I just remember in my spirit just being like, God, Why? Like, I, we've been together 17 years plus, 20 if you count our dating relationship. Why is it still this hard? How do we still miss each other? Why does it, bring, why does it have to happen now? This happened in my parenting in the last couple of weeks as well. We have three boys that uh, we're doing the best we can to raise and uh, to be godly men. It's, it's really hard. I ask myself, why? Um, and, and there's people in here in this room right now that I've talked to about their own suffering uh, with their health, 
with loss of family members, with addiction, with depression, with broken marriage, you name it. And we grieve with them in their suffering and we pray for it to be lessened and healed and removed as much as possible within God's will. But God has also given us a theology of trials and suffering in the Bible to help us make sense of our troubles and testings that we face in life and that protects us from the lies that our very real enemy would love for us to believe about the character of our God in the midst of those trials. And at the heart of this theology of trials and suffering that God has given us in his word is this truth. That testing and trials in our lives, whether God's allowing them or ordaining them, are grounded in God's love and intended for our ultimate and eternal good. That's the truth of God's word. Testing and trials in our lives, whether allowed or ordained, are grounded in God's love and intended for our ultimate and eternal good. Do we believe that? That's a hard one, isn't it? Let's see if the scriptures prove it out. In 1 Peter, Peter tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We're told here not to be surprised when difficulty, trial, and trouble come in this life, but rather to expect it. We're told Jesus suffered, and so, so will we. And this is something that, it's in a ton of different verses. I'd love to have time to unpack them all. We don't have time, but it's everywhere. We're told here that we rightly fight to trust God and to even rejoice in him through our struggles, knowing the fruit they will have produced at the time when we go to be with him. In James 1, James exhorts us, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James continues, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It seems there's some kind of truth here about our love for God being authenticated in the way that we respond to life's struggles. We're told by James here we should fight to see our trials and sufferings as good because they create steadfastness in us and a faith that's complete, he says. We're told by James that we're blessed when we turn to God in the midst of life's challenges because that leads to salvation and eternal life with him. Then in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul, these are such a good passage. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. Yeah. 
Paul's assuring us here that in our troubles, somehow we're being shown favor. We're being shown favor with opportunity after opportunity to grow in godly endurance and in godly character and in a hope in Christ that, hear this sound city, will not disappoint us. That's what it says. And we could keep going. There's dozens and dozens of passages like this uh, that we could consider. But the point, again, is that with a biblical theology of trials and suffering, we can see that testing and trials in our lives, whether God's allowing them or ordaining them, are grounded in his love and intended for our ultimate and eternal good. Do we believe that? That's a hard one. Believe. We believe, but help our unbelief, right? Okay, what's the point? My hope for us in this is that we would begin to see our trials and troubles and sufferings in this life the way God would have us see them. Not through the lens of scarcity, but through the lens of spiritual abundance and surplus. My hope is that we would see and believe that in Jesus' testing of Philip and the other disciples in this way that we see here in chapter 6, he doesn't mean to trick them or trip them up. Rather, with eternity in mind, Jesus means to lovingly stretch their faith and ours. Calvin said it this way. Christ is pleased to try our faith and patience in this manner. Yet from heaven, he beholds our wants and is careful to relieve them as far as is necessary for our welfare. And when assistance is not immediately granted, I want to pause there. What he's saying there is when we're suffering, when we're in trials, when we're in struggles, when we're feeling tested, and we don't get an immediate resolution to that, an immediate answer. Okay, that's the situation he's describing. And when assistance is not immediately granted, it is done for the best reason, even though that reason for now is concealed from us. Do we believe that? Sound City, in God's lower story in our passage today, God means to use this lesson of the testing and trying of Jesus' disciples to curate our character, yours and mine, and to grow us in him. He means to use the tests and trials of sufferings and sufferings in our lives to cause us to grow in endurance and in perseverance and in steadfastness and in a hope in Christ that will not and cannot disappoint us. Amen? The other important lower story reality for us to see here today as we look at the responses of Jesus' disciples to this test is how much like them we really are. Anybody feel that as they read the passage? Anybody feel like, oh, yeah, I'm Philip. Yeah, I'm Andrew. Or maybe, if you're like me, when you first read through the passage and you hear Philip and Andrew's responses, uh, maybe in a moment of pride, you're like, come on, you guys. Come on. Like Philip and Andrew and these other disciples, for that matter, they'd have, they'd have seen these upper story truths about God that we've been talking about already, right? They'd have seen the signs of Jesus' of Jesus' divinity. They'd have seen Jesus healing people. They've had seen him turning water into wine or at least heard about it. They'd have known his power over sickness, disease, and death. They'd have heard the claims of Jesus' divinity as well. They'd have spoken some of those claims even themselves, and they'd have been eyewitnesses to Jesus' own words stating that he is God, right? And yet in their response here, they entirely miss the point, don't they? But if we pause, if we're honest, like, are we that different than that? A.W. Pink, an English scholar, pastor, author, said it this way. 
Now, just forewarning, it's a little long, but it's a much longer thing that I like trimmed back and edited a little bit. But even though it's long, hang with it. I think it's worth it for us. Pink says this. How surprising was this failure in the faith of Philip? One would have supposed that after all the disciples had witnessed their after all that they had witnessed, that their faith would be strong and their hearts calm and confident. Ah, but should we? Would not our own God-dishonoring unbelief check such expectations? Have we not discovered how weak our faith is, how obtuse our understanding, how earthly our minds and hearts? In vain does the Lord look within us sometimes for even a ray of that faith which glorifies him. Do we not, like Philip and Andrew, look first to our our resources? Or do our first thoughts turn to the Lord Jesus, who is always faithful? Oh, dear reader, have we learned to spread each difficulty as it comes along before God? Have we formed the habit of instinctively turning to him? Here, right here, is our test of faith. Sound City, would you agree with me that all too often the unfortunate reality is that our own daily responses to God are not so different than Philip and Andrews, both directly and indirectly, both intentionally and unintentionally, we wander far from God, seeking answers and comfort and contentment and peace everywhere other than in the known source for all of these things. We see scarcity when a surplus in Christ is available. Twelve baskets full of overflow of provision is available to us in him, and we still see scarcity. We go about life each day with the answer to so many of our trials and struggles right in front of us in the person of Jesus, and yet we still all too often look first to our own resources, don't we? Yet in God's loving kindness, he corrects us, he instructs us with words like this. Trust in me with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, dear ones. In all your ways acknowledge me, and I will make your paths straight. We're burdened by the worries and real sufferings of our lives, yet Jesus encourages us, encourages us still with the real answer to all our testings and troubles. Now this is from Matthew 11, but I'm going to read it as if Jesus is speaking it to you, okay? This is what Jesus says to us in the midst of our worries and real sufferings. Come to me, all who are burdened and are weighted down in life, and I will give you rest. Take my way and teachings upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For the burden of living in my ways is easy, and the weight of living for my glory is light, and it is good. Our God is so good to us. Amen? Well, before we pivot and turn to a time of responding and worship to what God's been teaching us Let's make sure we pull back together all that we've seen. In the Apostle John's thesis statement in chapter 20 of this letter, he makes clear that God's design for him in writing this gospel account is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have salvation and new life in his name. And that's God's upper story in the gospel of John. Then here in John 6, 1 through 15 today, we heard that upper story ring out with new clarity as new signs and claims of Jesus' divinity were put on display to encourage our hearts and to draw us ever nearer to God in Christ. 
And in God's lower story in John 6 this morning, we saw how the overarching truths about Jesus and who we are in him give us help and wisdom for walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called as his disciples as we wade through the tests and trials and troubles we all face with a clear biblical perspective on God's good intentions in them. And as we join the course of every disciple since Philip in praying earnestly that God would stir up in each one of us such a love for Jesus that we would never fail to turn to him both in times of gladness and in times of trouble. Sound City, in Jesus' fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000, we're reminded of the abundant life God has for us in Christ. And we're reminded that the witnessing of the works of Jesus always move God's people from a life and mindset of scarcity to a life of surplus and true abundance in him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your undeserved favor on us and sending Jesus to die in our place as our substitute so that we could be reconciled in relationship with you for all eternity, starting even now. Jesus, thank you for being our unblemished Passover lamb. In your sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, and in you we have new life. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit as well, who you've given us to guide us and encourage us toward you in times of gladness and in times of trial and in all of life. God, we thank you for your servant John and for your word to us through him this morning. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, as we reflect now on what we've learned and what we've heard, let's turn to a time of worshiping in response. And as we often do, we'll do that in a number of different ways. We're going to respond through giving, through the receiving of the Lord's Supper together, through singing, and then we'll also ask some questions about what we've learned. We'll give you some questions to help you in your community groups and in your own personal study this week and some prayer points as well. But we'll start all that in our response through giving. So if our financial stewards would come, I see them at it already. Now, if you're a guest today, I want to make sure that you know that while you're certainly welcome to give, we would never want to take that opportunity away from you, the opportunity to worship God through giving. Uh, If you're a guest, you're under absolutely no obligation to give, so please know that. We're just really glad that you're here with us. But for the rest of us who will be giving, uh, what we always try and remind ourselves when we walk through this uh, each week is that we're to give as worship and we're to give joyfully. And we'll often look to 2 Corinthians 9-7 to remind us of these things where it says, Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So as we give, let's make sure we're doing so with that principle in mind. If you've got questions about how to give, there's some information up on the screen that will give you several different ways, different options for giving. Um, there's information in your bottom of your weekly as well. And then you can also talk to the folks out at the Connect desk, and they can help you get pointed in the right direction as well. Now, after the giving baskets are done being passed, you're going to see communion element baskets come around. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to grab a set of those elements as they're being passed around. But while they're being passed, let me go ahead and read uh, our discussion questions for the week as well. Now, these are in your weekly that you got when you came through the door, too. So you don't have to try and write them down or anything, but I'll read them for us just to prime the pump for us for the week. Number one, the signs, miracles, and claims of Jesus were done by him in order to elicit a response What is your response to the signs and claims of Jesus' divinity that we considered today? Number two, for the Christians among us, 
In what ways do you view or live life with a scarcity mindset instead of living out of the surplus and abundance available to you in Christ? And how is God asking you to think, believe, respond differently in all of life in light of that abundance that we have in Jesus? Relatedly, what circumstances in life cause you to sometimes forget the surplus of every good thing, to use the language of Scripture, of every good thing that truly matters, which is what we have in Jesus? It's a good question to discuss with your groups and then consider how you might pray for one another, how you might encourage one another in all of this. And then there's a bunch of verses listed there just to get you started in walking through that with others if you want to study that a little bit further. Then here's a couple prayer points to get you started this week as well. You can be praying uh, first that each one of us would grow in living out of the abundance and surplus that we have in Jesus that we've been talking about this morning and that God would protect us from the enemy's lies to the contrary. Remember we said that he would love to to tell us that we don't deserve adversity. We don't deserve uh, trials and struggles. We want to uh, pray against that. Also, we're going to be praying uh, that God would help us remember and trust that trials and suffering in life are not contrary to the abundant life he promises. And then also, uh, for those who aren't yet Christians, we want to be praying that their eyes would be opened to the salvation and abundance that they have available to them in Christ and that God might use you in helping them uh, come to know about him. I'll invite the band to go ahead and come whenever they're ready as well. And then we'll also begin uh, our discussion of responding this morning through taking of the Lord's Supper together, which the Bible talks about as a memorial meal for Christians, the bread reminding us of Jesus' body broken for us, the, the juice reminding us of Jesus' blood that was shed for us. And the Apostle Paul is the one who gives us instruction in the Scriptures for taking the Lord's Supper, In 1 Corinthians 11, he reminds us of the words of Jesus to his disciples, saying, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat, this bread, and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll respond in song right after that. And at that point, please feel free to take the communion elements as you see fit. Let's pray together once again. Father God, in the signs and claims of Jesus, of his divinity, we find forgiveness, salvation, new life, peace, hope, joy. Stir up each of these in us now as we respond to what you've taught us this morning. God, while we trust your will and the testing and trials you allow in our lives, let me also pray for me and for my friends gathered here by saying we believe, but help our unbelief. And to that end, uh, we pray also for healing and for relief for all who are suffering right now in this room as much as is possible within your goodwill. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.